Welcome to Dumb Love. I'm Sally Brooks. And I'm Jen O'Neill Smith. And this is a podcast about all of the dumb things that people will do for love. So welcome to episode 116. How's it going, everybody? <laughs> Hello. How are you guys doing out there this week? Good. Are you busy? Are you busy like we're busy? We're are you guys busy, busy like us? Busy Yo. like us? This is Jen's week to be crazy busy. Yeah. I've been crazy busy this week. Um, just lots of work stuff. Uh, it's my son's birthday, which is Aww. very exciting. Happy birthday, so Sally. we had his uh, birthday celebration. Um, he's 11. We had his um, birthday celebration on Wednesday. Then his party is tonight. And then also another thing, if you guys are interested, well, this will come out after, so never mind. You were there in spirit. But on <laughs> Saturday, I'm hosting the Comedy Ten at the East Atlanta Strut, which Sally will be on it. Yes. And I'll be there. Um, hopefully, we see you. And if we've missed you, then we'll catch you next time. Or we'll catch you at the Red Clay Comedy Festival. That's right. Um, but um, I – so I was uh, – it came down to the wire of me getting my story ready. And um, last night I spoke to my good friend, Milani. You guys have heard me talk to her a bunch. She lives in uh, Jersey Shitty. Jersey Shitty. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Milani. I call it Jersey Shitty because I wish you were here. Jersey City. <laughs> Freudian slip. Um, and uh, she owns a beautiful restaurant called Scram. It's a market now too. Uh, it's a so you can get all kinds of great stuff. So go check it out. But I was talking to her and I was like, Lani, I don't want to write my story. I just want to talk to you." <laughs> and she was like, "Jen, go write your story. The people need dumb love, <laughs> <laughs> and you are boring." <laughs> <laughs> the people need you, Jen. The people need it. So this is we're here for you. This people. is for Milani. <laughs> Milani and all the people. Yeah. <laughs> um, also, I do have a very short night clipper update. I feel like and we I need a song for the night clipper. <laughs> like do 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 night clipper. He yeah. Clips at night. Eclipse at night. I um I think we should hire um so Matt Pesciani made our uh, theme song by the way he's brilliant so funny he's yeah. a comedian and composer and he's made a lot of other people's podcast um, songs um but I think this is a job for Matt Pesciani or mm. our listeners let's see who does it best yeah <laughs> <laughs> can you beat Matt can you be funnier than Matt Pesciani <laughs> I'll um, send you uh, some old Sally Brooks merch. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> you make a Night Clipper theme song. Yes. <laughs> um, so I guess apparently he's still at it, He's but he keeps walking past the same house with his camera phone up because uh-huh. like, he thinks that they're not going to see him, but you're not invisible. <laughs> like we know it's you and you can walk any on any other street but anyway apparently um this person whose house it is they have installed a motion censored sprinkler system what (laughs) (laughs) that's amazing so i'm sitting here with bated breath waiting (laughs) for the video 
Oh, this is so exciting. After Jen told me what street it was on, and it is a schmancy street. And so it just makes it like all that much better because I just love the idea that this is like just this rich fuck being worried about rich fuck problems. (laughs) Oh, man, it's so great. Oh, well, really I can't is. wait for the update. I can't wait for, to see the video of him getting sprayed. <laughs> oh, my God. I'm kind of scared. Like, Are I you? Like, well, I'm a little nervous that it's going to cause a complete and total meltdown. <laughs> well, yeah, probably. Yeah. Probably. I mean, he couldn't handle a drop of dew on his ankle. How's he going to handle – he's going to melt like the Wicked Witch. <laughs> I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you for that update. That was amazing. The night clipper. He clips at (laughs) night. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Let's get into our quickies. All right. Let's do it. I'm starting this week. I found this really great article for Newsweek.com written by Samantha Berlin. It is about exploding fireworks going awry okay at a couple's wedding ceremony (laughs) Uh, so this video just went viral it was originally posted to reddit's what could go wrong subreddit and it showed um this newlywed couple dancing alone on the dance floor and then on the stage next to them there was a row of spark fountains um, which i guess are used at weddings to like shoot off tall towers of sparks uh, sure. Uh, which freaked me out. <laughs> Freak me out. I'm scared. Yeah, I, I was no like, thank you. <laughs> burnt by sparklers when I was a kid and that, that kind of, uh, yeah, no, thank you. Yeah. No sparklers, no fireworks. I don't want anything to do with that. Yeah. And then on the video, you can see like a few guests jumping out of their seats when one of the spark indoor spark fountains sparked a fire on the ceiling because the ceiling was decorated with satin fabric and hanging (laughs) floral arrangements. I'm sure that was horrifying and it's horrible for that couple, but it's just like, what the fuck do you think was going to happen? I know. And then one person like tried to throw water on the fire but couldn't reach the frame uh, flames because it was all the way at like the highest point of the room. It was on the ceiling. And so then all of the guests are heard screaming and everybody's like screaming and running for the exit. Apparently spark fountains, this let this be a lesson to everybody. Uh-huh. Um, they're like commonly use indoor fireworks um, because there's no smoke or odor uh-huh. unless things catch on fire. Um, but <laughs> these are actually considered pyrotechnics by many fire departments in the um in the U.S., um, and it's considered a pyrotechnic from the uh, by the National Fire Protection Agency. So, if you use these, you can actually be fined up uh, up to fifteen hundred dollars for using these indoor pyrotechnics. So. Apparently, when the guests were all running out of the burning venue, several staff members tried to put out the fire with extinguishers, but they were unsuccessful. And then soon the decorations were that were hanging from the ceiling crashed down onto the dance floor. Um, and then the whole venue was filled with smoke and, and while the guests were all running out and evacuating. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> One of the uh, Reddit users joked in the comment section um, and said, uh, staff is walking out, shaking their heads like, if this shit happens one more time, I swear I'm going to quit. 
So nobody was injured um, in this fire. Thank God. Yeah, um, that's this, that's why it's funny. You guys, I'm really. Can we stop using pyrotechnics for things like weddings or um, birth announcements, gender reveals? I saw a video maybe on TikTok of a guy – like it's one of those that where it like pops out like a champagne bottle, but it's like pops out and shows the color of whatever smoke coming out, right? Right. Do you know what I mean? Like for a gender reveal? Like a smoke bomb, I guess. Yeah, so the but the top pops off, right? So uh but he had it backwards and it just went like right into his dick. (laughs) 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 And you just see him like, oh, I think I'm gonna throw up. I think I'm gonna throw up. And like the wife is just like laughing, but then also like, are you okay? Are you okay? And he's just like, oh I hate you. That is not at all what I thought you were going to say happened. But that's awesome. Yeah. That's hilarious. Yeah. Oh, my God. But yeah, like, I mean, but in all seriousness, like, there have been so many gender reveal um, mishaps with pyrotechnics that have led to complete devastation and forest fires. Yes. Like, I mean, there's just, you know, just, just say it. It's a boy. Yeah, it's a girl. Put it in a cake. Put it in a cupcake. Put it. Have your friend write it in an envelope, just like the Emmys or the Oscars. Ooh, and yeah. And you read the envelope in front of your friends. Why is that so hard? Why do we have to set forests on fires? Stop being so dramatic, people. Also, and can I be honest? Nobody gives a shit. Yeah. <laughs> Why are really, nobody a boy does. Or girl? Nobody cares. Nobody cares. I know. Although I will say that when my friends are having babies and they decide to like wait until the baby's born to find out, I'm like, why? Uh, oh, yeah. I mean, like, you care. <laughs> yeah. I personally, but like, really, would you, like, if they told, if like you, they did a gender reveal, would you be like, <gasps> like, I don't know. No. And, and I no, certainly wouldn't care if you told me over a text message. <laughs> Versus, versus made me come to your house and act excited. Setting the California wildfires that devastated <laughs> an entire region. Text me. Yeah. Send a text, man. <laughs> text me. Send a text. Uh, well, wow. that's amazing. And uh, I'm glad nobody got hurt. But me still too. don't use pyrotechnics. Um, yeah. All right. My quickie comes from two articles in the Durango Herald by Nicholas Johnson and Shannon Mullane. And this is a story of a dum-dum who loves crime, horses, and I suspect, Jen, meth. Oh, Um, God. (laughs) So this story came to my attention because a few days ago, Dr. Dude Fuck sent Grace and I a picture of this, like, it was like a, a, a news story, and it was a young guy in his boxer shorts, and he's wading through the Animus River, which is in downtown Durango, which is where... Aaron lives and and it's like right where I mean it's a very small town right so it's like right where she works and where their their kids go to school and so it's like right in the middle of the town and the guy is like just in his white boxer shorts and then he's there's a cop like 10 feet behind him like walking behind him like okay guy are you gonna give it up so this guy, he's a 25-year-old named Jonah Barrett Lesko, and he wasn't just out for an afternoon swim, but he had just escaped from the nearby La Plata County Jail. <laughs> and 
So law enforcement had first learned about his escape when someone called in and was like, uh, there's a man in like a jail jumpsuit running near the Home Depot. <laughs> and <laughs> the Durango police chief happened to be driving by in the area and he actually saw this guy, Jonah. And he by then he had removed his jumpsuit and was running on the west side of the river in just his boxer shorts. And the police chief was like, that's what really attracted my attention to him because you don't see half naked people running through the woods in their boxer shorts. So the police chief and another officer pull over and then they like kind of walk, you know, run after him. Apparently he keeps going across the river multiple times. And then finally he surrendered. There was enough officers surrounding him. And the jail actually didn't even know that Jonah was missing until he was caught. Like, it turns out he was oh just my like, God. yeah, like, which makes you feel real, you know, safe. But he's like, he was like out in the rec yard. Apparently, there was like a small hole in the fence. There's like two fences. So he went through one. And then there's a video. You can see him just climb up and over the second fence and then made a rant run for it. And the reason that I'm telling you this story and why I'm saying it's about a relationship kind of is because um, yesterday, Dr. Doofuck poloed and was like, ooh, I got an update. The dude who escaped from jail was there because he had been arrested in June for having sex in public with a horse. Okay. Oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, I wow. know. So, okay, apparently the incident happened around 10 p.m. at the La Plata County Fairgrounds. The horse's caretaker had a video surveillance camera in the stall and saw it happening on a live feed. So it was, like, activated. And so the guy got an alert, and all of a sudden he's like, oh, my God, so is somebody having sex with this horse. So. <gasps> Oh, yeah. my God. He calls the police, and this kid Jonah took off on foot, leaving behind a mountain bike and a backpack, which, like, four different people were like, oh, yeah, that's Jonah's. Um, he loves so, horses. <laughs> he loves horses. So police also received tips from the public saying that Jonah was heard bragging about the incident. So he was arrested, and during his interviews with he police, he was bragging he about having sex only- with the horse? Huh? He was bragging about it. Yeah, he was bragging about it. Oh my God. Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What a weird circle of friends. What a. (laughs) (laughs) And they were just like, wait, no way, man. I had sex with a donkey. (laughs) Got you beat. Did you ever have sex with a rhino? (laughs) My guess is that, like, this wasn't received that well because everybody came forward to just be like, oh, yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry. Oh, my God. So he was arrested for that. He admitted to it, and he said that the reason he did it is because the horse had given indications to him based on its behavior that it was interested in pursuing participating in sexual activity he said he'd never had sex with animals before this but the horse was giving him the eyes and he was like what am i supposed to do say no oh my Um, god he also claimed that the incident was spurred by drugs and issues in a personal relationship I'd say, I'd say there were issues. <laughs> um, so he was a re- released on bail from that, but then was actually arrested again on suspicion of several burglaries, including stealing six bicycles, breaking into a car, and shoplifting from stores. He pled guilty to that and was actually like out on like a wait out on bail, awaiting sentencing. And then while he was free on bail, he was arrested again because he tried to. Um, 
steal a car and that was why he was in jail and then escaped. <laughs> so Wow, he's yeah. a busy man. He's a busy man and I can't wait for you guys to see the pictures because he's got crazy eyes. Um but neck he's tattoos? expected neck tattoos. No neck face tattoos. tattoos. Uh no, you would think, but just real crazy face. Like okay. but he's gonna be charged with a felony and hopefully not be allowed to go near horses anytime soon. Oh my gosh. That's a wild one. That's it's a, a wild, wild one. one. <laughs> hey, Sally. Hey, Jen. You ready for this week's uh, true crime portion of the episode? I sure am. Okay, great. Because I put a lot of work into this. <laughs> I did. I'm no, I believe you. <laughs> It was just like what are they? it sounded like you were like you better fucking appreciate my work. <laughs> you better like this. <laughs> I mean the people out there appreciate it, Jen. I appreciate Good. it. Good. <laughs> um so my information uh, this week came from an article for heavy.com written by Caroline Warnock and an art- article for the Cinemaholic written by Christy Marotra. And then also an episode of Dateline titled The Pink Gun Mystery. Okay. Mm-hmm. Robin Bledsoe grew up in Amarillo, Texas to two military parents. Um, her parents were um, kind of the perfect couple. They were very much in love. And Dateline called them um, like apple pie, you know, just just good uh-huh. old-fashioned, good human beings. Yeah. And so Robin really wanted that life for herself. You know, she wanted, you know, relationship her parents had and she wanted that for herself. And so she dated a lot trying to find, you know, her, her match, her mate, you know, she was young and, um, she, as young girls do, they usually pick the wrong dudes. Did you ever do that? Oh, sure. Ever? Several times. <laughs> uh, so she, you know, she was very young. So she dated like a string of bad Bad boys is what they called. They they called them. And um, so her parents said that whenever she did date a nice guy, she would kind of like freak out and then go back to dating bad guys again. She was kind of a serial dater, like jump from guy to guy because she just never wanted to be alone. She always wanted to be with someone. Yeah. And then one night in 2003 when Robin was out line dancing with her friend. Sure. Um, that sounds like a 2003 thing to do. Yeah. In Amarillo, <laughs> Texas. Uh-huh. Definitely. She met a guy named Jeremy David Spielbauer, who went by the name JD. Everybody called him JD. He was 21. He was in the Marine Corps. He was very polite and chivalrous. He told her that he had served in Iraq and Afghanistan. They ended up totally hitting it off and they danced all night long and she fell for him immediately. And she felt like she had finally found a nice guy. So then just two months into their relationship, Robin found out that she was pregnant with his baby. And so, yeah. So, and she was, I believe, 19 at this point. So then she moved out of her parents' house and into his house that he lived um, out with his grandmother. Her parents said that they had never even heard of JD yet until she was just like, I met a guy, his name's JD, I'm having his baby, I'm moving mm-hmm. in with, you know what I mean? So they're yeah, like, yeah. okay then, you know, yeah. great. So she ended up giving birth to a baby girl. And then shortly after that, they got married. And then shortly after that, they had another baby girl. They were young and they didn't have much money. He was like a struggling mechanic and money was really tight. So they fought a lot, as most mm-hmm. couples do with two little ones. You yeah. know what I mean? It's That's a stressful exhausting. time. 
Yeah. And then add like money troubles in the mix. It's very stressful. So yeah. they would, they were kind of tumultuous. They would break up and get back together, break up, get back together. But in an effort to get their relationship back on the right track, they started going to church together. So that's when JD ended up um, reconnecting with an old friend named Katie Phipps that was also going to that church. So Katie Phipps had a rough childhood growing up. She was also, you know, she grew up in Amarillo, Texas as well. Um, but yeah. she, her childhood was very rough. Her father passed away right before she turned two. And then her mother was so upset over the loss of her father that she started using drugs. And then she eventually became addicted to heroin. She was also an alcoholic and in and out of both jail and rehab. So Katie, in the young age of 14, she was in the eighth grade. I believe that's like 14 years old, right? Yeah. Yeah. So she um, dropped out of school in the eighth grade and she lived on the street and was doing drugs. And when she was 15, she became pregnant with her son, Diego. And that was her big wake up moment. Like she was just determined to get herself out of off the streets and have a good life because she was determined to provide a good life for her son and give him what she never had. Yeah. So she got off drugs and she ended up moving away from Amarillo with Diego's dad. And, you know, she essentially got her life together. But then when Diego was a year old, um, they broke up. And it's crazy to say got her life together at 16. I mean, she yeah. was just a child. And so... And then when she was 17, she became pregnant with her daughter. And then shortly thereafter, her daughter's father left her, apparently for a stripper, as they said in the podcast, but um, or the Dateline episode, which is also mm -hmm. a podcast. Right. It's, but, um, it's two minutes and one. And so, <laughs> a podcast, so, a TV show, a podcast, a TV show, a podcast and a TV show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> She ended up moving to Florida with a new boyfriend, and that's where she got her GED and was on a good track for a while. And then five years later, they ended up breaking up. Yeah. And so she decided to move back to Amarillo, Texas, just to kind of reset. And her brother had asked her to come move back and help her with um, childcare for his children. And so she was reluctant to go back, but she did just because, you know, she had bad memories of Amarillo, Texas. Right. Um, but so she moved back and so she had known JD from back in the day. So when her friends and relatives threw her a welcome home party in Amarillo, um, he was there, he was at the party and then that's when they reconnected. So Katie, Robin and JD all became good friends and they would go to church all the time. They would hang out all the time. Robin and Katie became good friends. Robin would sometimes complain to Katie about the problems that she was having with JD and you know Katie would listen and offer support and JD and Katie started hanging out a lot and a little too much mm -hmm. and her friends would ask like Robin's friends would ask her like it doesn't bother you that JD and Katie are hanging out so much and she was like no no nothing's going on it's fine it's like there's nothing going on until JD actually moved into Katie's house what yeah, he just like left Robin and moved into Katie's house and started raising Katie's children. Oh. And so 
After eight years of marriage, JD left Robin for Katie. And then um, shortly after he left her and moved into Katie's house, Katie and JD were married. He just basically started a new, I mean, he did still have like joint custody of his two daughters, but he was like living in the house with Katie and her kids. Hmm. And so, but Robin ended up moving on and she met a guy named Jared and she was really happy and like gushed to her friends and family about him. And they said that she was like her old self again, like that JD kind of, you know, made her more sadder, more depressed, more stressed version of herself. But when she was like moved on from him and dating this guy, Jared, she was like her old self. She was like looking forward to a future with Jared. Yeah. But then on April 7th in 2014, Robin left home to go out with some friends, but she never came home. And I know. And her parents got nervous when she didn't return home in the morning. So they started to call around and ask her friends if they've seen her or were trying to find out where she could be. But no one had seen her until um, noon the next day when a man was driving down a road called Helium Road. And he was turned around the corner. And then all of a sudden he saw a group of girls running up to his Jeep and screaming like, she's dead, she's dead. And he was like, what are you talking about? And some, so some girls had found a Chevy Tahoe um, with a girl inside. And when he went to investigate, he saw a girl slumped over in the driver's seat and she was in fact deceased. He called the police and when they came out, they couldn't find any identification. There was no purse, no wallet, no driver's license. But when they ran the plates, they confirmed that the Chevy Tahoe did in fact belong to Robin Spielbauer. She had been killed by blunt force trauma to the head Mm. um, and also by a gunshot wound. Her family and friends were obviously devastated when they found out. Um, You know, she had two little girls and it was just so heartbreaking. She was so young and beloved and it's just so sad. And when investigators inspected the scene, they noticed something strange. They noticed on the window, um, there was like a pink polymer material, like kind of scraped down the side of the window, like almost like the window had been struck with this object. Okay. And so they interrogated her new boyfriend, Jared, because they thought maybe she was going to see him. And he told the police that he was working at his bar until 930 that night and that he then went home and played Xbox and went to sleep. That's what he told the police. Then they interrogated JD, and he said that he went out, had a couple of beers, came home, but JD told the police that they should look into a guy named Chris. He said that he was this guy that was like really – like kind of a bad dude. He was into drugs and he was violent and that him and Robin used to date. And Mm -hmm. Katie was there too when they were investigating JD and Katie agreed. She's like, yeah, you should look into Chris. And when they asked Katie where she was, she said that she was at her friend Savannah's house with her son, Diego. So when the police talked to this guy named Chris, he said that he was at home with his mom and then his mom confirmed his alibi. So all of these are very weak alibis. Yeah. Every single one of them. It's like what um, my mom said. My, yeah. I know. My dad, mom, right now is here. <laughs> I mean, sure I know you were, honey. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So everybody's alibis are weak and the police don't have a lot to go on until they looked into the phone records. And then they found a series of text messages between JD and Robin the night that Robin was killed. Robin had texted JD, are we still on for tonight or do we need to reschedule? 
And then JD texted, you about ready? And then Robin said, yep. And that was the very last text that she sent before she was killed. Mm-hmm. And so this is where JD starts to change his story. What? <laughs> yeah. So he told the police that they were going to meet up. First, when they brought him in for questioning, he said he had never spoken to her or whatever. But then we're like, we have the text messages. He was like, well, we were going to meet up to talk about the kids. But she never showed up and I didn't, you know, think another thing of it. And the police knew that he was full of shit. Right. Because you would have told us that in the first place. Exactly. And also because when they talked to Robin's friends, Robin's friends let the police know that JD was cheating on Katie with Robin. Oh, Jesus. A real love triangle. Or as Dateline called it, the Texas two-step of (laughs) – Love triangles. (laughs) So according to her friends, when Katie found out about JD and Robin, um, she Katie lost her shit. In fact, one day when Robin had gone to pick up, this was like five months prior, when Robin had gone to Katie and JD's house to pick up the girls, Katie had attacked Robin and then they, they, the two of them got into like a really bad physical altercation. Okay. Um, Yeah. So the police brought Katie in for questioning and she asked the police, this was all on, on the podcast, but she's like, can I just ask you right now, was my husband cheating on me? And then, um, when they were like, well, we, I can't say yes for sure, but they were definitely talking and texting each other and blah, blah, blah. She started bawling, crying like she had just found out for the first time that JD was cheating on her. And mm-hmm. they were like, you know this information. Like, why are you surprised? You know, you knew that he was cheating on you because they saw that she had sent both Robin and JD hundreds, hundreds of angry text messages about the affair. Yeah. And so just four days, yeah. So just four days before the murder, she had sent 334 text messages to JD saying things like, I'll break Robin's face. And this one saying, I'll hurt every single one of you on my way out. And on the day that Robin was murdered, she texted JD and said, "Um, I caught the last amount of disrespect from you and your bitch ex-wife. And then said, you started this mess and I will finish it. So Katie swore that she had. Okie Yeah. Katie swore that she had nothing to do with the murder. And she used Uh my favorite line, which is she said, I may be a lot of things, but I am not a murderer. (laughs) Which we always know if you say that, you're one thing. And it's a murderer. (laughs) It's a murderer. (laughs) So Katie's alibi was that she was at her best friend Savannah's house that night and that she left her house around 10 p.m. And they didn't really have anything to place Katie at the scene of the crime until the police got a warrant to search J.D. and Katie's house. And that's when they found several guns. You know, it's Texas. They have lots of guns. Mm-hmm. But then they found a Sig Sauer pistol which that had a pink polymer handle. Um, uh-huh. Yeah. And so they – there were some pieces missing from the handle of the gun, almost like like the handle had been cracked. And then when the police went back to the crime scene, they dug around the dirt and found the missing pink polymer pieces. And they said that it fit in the gun like a puzzle. Yeah. And so they also found the bullet casings that matched the gun as well. So it was 100% this gun is what killed her. Like I said, it had the scratch on the window. 
And it was like somebody had hit the window with the gun. Yeah. And so they looked on um, Katie's Facebook page, and that's when they saw a picture of Katie holding the pink pistol. And then shortly thereafter, Katie removed the photo from her Facebook profile, which looked suspicious, obviously. On April 11th, 2014, Katie was arrested for the murder of Robin Spielbauer. And But Katie was adamant that she had nothing to do with the murder. And she tells police that she's starting to think that maybe J.D. did it and that he was trying to set her up. Mm-hmm. And J.D. changed his story again. Uh-huh. And now, te- now that Katie's arrested, J.D. changed his story again and now tells the police that Katie came home the night that Robin was murdered and said to him, if I see you talking to that bitch again, I'll kill her. And then he went to sleep And woke up and realized that Katie was gone and had taken his truck. He told the police that he was supposed to meet Robin, but not at his house like he originally said, but on Helium Road. But he Mm -hmm. said that he still never went. So the police pointed out to him that his phone pinged that night close to Helium Road, not at his house. Like, so they're like, you say you're at your house, but your phone pinged at Helium Road. And then JD said, oh, Katie took my phone. So he says that Katie took his phone in his truck and went there. Uh Um, And then eight days later, J.D. changed his story again. J.D., I feel like this is making you look worse. Yes. (laughs) So he told the police that he went to Helium Road to meet Robin and that they were sitting in the car talking about the kids. And then Katie drove up, so not in his truck, obviously, because he had his own car, that Katie drove up hit the glass with her gun and then Katie and Robin got out of the car and started fighting and then he left the scene and Uh he thought that Katie was going to follow him but she didn't and he thinks that that's when Katie must have killed her. He told the police that the reason that he changed his story was because he loved Katie so much and he didn't want to admit to himself that she could have killed Robin. Uh Um, He actually told the police, I still love her with all my heart. And then JD (laughs) left the station, filed for divorce, and never once visited Katie in jail. (laughs) (laughs) He loves her so much. And so Katie... While in jail, she asked for a lie detector test, and they actually gave her two lie detector tests, and she failed both of them. But her story never changed. Like, she stuck to her story and said that she was never, ever at Helium Road. And so from Randall County Jail, Katie actually wrote letters to Dateline and asked them to cover the case. She was like, I will give you a hell of a story. You know what I yeah. mean? Like she wanted to tell them all about her ex-husband, JD, who was who she was convinced was the killer and framed her for murder. And so for six months, Katie and Dateline wrote back and forth to each other. And Katie was just, she said she was determined to quote, get justice for Robin. Like she wanted to obviously uh-huh. be freed from jail, but she said that she wanted Robin's killer behind bars, which was JD. And so according to Katie, she said that all of those text messages where she was being threatening were, she was like, yeah, I sent them. I was angry as hell. He was cheating on me. I was pissed. And she was like, but I was not actually going to kill her. And then when they asked her like, well, what did you mean by the I'll finish this text? And she said, what I meant was like, I'm going to divorce you. Like I'll finish this. Like I'll go down to the courthouse and file for divorce. 
So she said that she was at her friend Savannah's house that night. Remember, she said she was there the entire night with her friend, her friend's kids, and then her son, Diego. Yeah. So even when the police told her that JD had told them that he placed her at the scene, she never changed her story. And she insisted that she was never on helium that night. So she... She never once said, well, Jade, I was there, but JD did it. You know what I mean? Like she was just like, I wasn't there. I just wasn't there. And so, but she sat in jail for 467 days. And then a break in the case came when this is just like one of those random events where the lead investigator overheard somebody in their office talking about how, oh, like Android phones, even if the Wi-Fi is turned off, um, or if the phone's turned off, you can still track the location. You can still use data to track where that cell phone was. And so even if they're turned off. So Katie's son, Diego, had an Android phone. And Katie had an iPhone. The Wi-Fi turned off. So they could never track Katie's phone to show that she was actually at Helium Road. Yeah. Um, so, but they, but... Katie was always with Diego. They were never separated. Where he went, she went, and she took him wherever. And so they knew that once that they got those phone records, they could prove that Katie was there and that Katie was at Helium Road. But when they got the phone records, it actually proved that Katie, like she said, was never on Helium Road that night. <gasps> yep. And with that evidence, she was set free. Wow. And the DA, James Farron, who put her behind bars, actually made a public apology and admitted that he was wrong and had wrongly wrongly put an innocent person behind bars, which is huge yeah. for a DA to admit. Like they never admit that right. fall, you know? So it, but with that, he also resolved to put the right person behind bars, who he hundred percent believed it was JD Spielbauer. Because it had to be one of the two. Right. It was either him or her. So he was convinced now that J.D. framed his wife to murder his ex-wife, and he thought that he intentionally used Katie's pink gun to kill Robin and took it back home so that the police could find it. Yeah. It, you know, um, and it's really funny because, like, several times in this podcast, um, people talk about how stupid J.D. was. Uh-huh. Like, and he was like, I just didn't think he would uh, – was smart enough to think to do that because he just seems really stupid. <laughs> <laughs> So he thinks that that's what, like he purposely chose Katie's gun and that he also had changed his story. Also, it looks shady as hell that JD changed his story like five times. Yeah. Um, and there was also security footage of a truck that looked like JD's that was driving in the vicinity of Helium Road, but they weren't able to see the license plate numbers, but they didn't see anything that looked like Katie's car. So, but they did see something like JD. So that's just a bit of evidence. But they also had testimony from a girl that I guess JD was also dating or seeing that told that made a comment saying like that his life would be a lot easier if Robin was dead or if some. I think he used the phrase somebody put a bullet in Robin or something like that. Yikes! So nine months went by, but he, um, the DA was reluctant to arrest JD because he had already made such a huge mistake before. So he wanted like rock hard evidence to know that JD did it. And nine months later, Robin's mother, um, so this is JD's ex-mother-in-law, 
Robin's mother called the police because she said that JD, the balls on this guy, asked her to buy him a ticket to New York for the weekend. What? Like, yeah. And she was like, that's weird. You know, it's just like, why would you be going to New York? And and like, they were also thinking that's really close to Canada. You know, they were thinking he was trying to flee the country because he knew that they were closing in on him. So, uh. so with that, the police arrested JD on April 16th, 2016. Uh, so he was in custody, but they still needed to, you know, convict him. The very DA that put Katie behind bars then turned to Katie and asked him if she would help convict JD. And she agreed. She actually said that she really like, you know, the Dateline asked her like, was that hard for you? Like, you know, this guy like made your life a living hell and now you want to help him. And she said she actually really respected him. She respected the fact that he admitted that he was wrong and he was determined to set it right. Plus she wanted JD to go to jail. She agreed to help and JD went to trial on January 15th, 2018. So the prosecutions, um, you know, they said that basically one of two people did it. It was either Katie or JD and they could prove that it wasn't Katie. So it had to have been JD. They also showed the jury videos of him changing his story multiple times. Um, They proved that he lied, and they also proved that not only had he lied about his story and changing it a million times, but he also lied about being a Marine. He had never been in the military at all. Uh Uh-huh. Fucking liar. Fucking liar. And and on the trial and on the pod, it was so funny. At trial and on the podcast, they asked JD, um, like, why two women were fighting over him. And on the pot on Dateline, he was like, I mean, I don't know. I'm not a really good looking man. Like, it's like, it's like, I don't know. It's like, so we've established he's stupid and he's a liar and he's not good looking. He's not good looking. And and Katie also testified against him. And then they also had the testimony from the new girl that he was dating that said that he had made that comment about putting a bullet in Robin. The defense basically, they were just like, Katie did it. And their, uh, their other defense was also, well, JD was so stupid. (laughs) Like, <laughs> literally like their defense was that he just was not smart enough to pull this off like yeah. he, he's not a smart man not and a smart so man. after just three hours of deliberation the jury found him guilty and sentenced him to life in prison the thing is is that a lot of people are still not convinced that katie didn't have something to do with it yeah you know? i mean i like, could see i could see that Yeah, it's like there's still a lot of discrepancies in Katie's story that it just kind of feels a little bit odd. Yeah. Well, and also it's like there's no definitive proof. There's not like – I mean, I know there's not always DNA evidence. There's definitely not or forensics. But like that kind of stuff where it's just like we just did it by like elimination. Well, we can prove she didn't, so he did it. You know, so it's like um, shouldn't we prove he did it? Now it seems like – the whole like follow Diego's phone and then that's where Katie is like yeah that there's there's some room for yeah like that doesn't that seem not 100% true. yeah and so i don't really know i don't know 
how I feel about it. But JD actually appealed the verdict on two grounds. He said that his lawyer said that there were doubts about the objectivity of two of the jurors in his trial Mm -hmm. and that the lack of effective assistance provided to him by attorneys is what they said. So on January 22nd of 2020, um, the Seventh Court of Appeals actually reversed his conviction. Um, stating that the trial um, judge had abused their discretion concerning the jury. And then, um, but then in May of 2021, it was ruled by the Texas Court of Criminal Appeals that there were no errors in picking the jurors leading to JD's conviction. So now he is still in jail um, at this moment. Um, He's, and he's, 38 years old, and he's expected to be released in 2046, which doesn't sound that far away. It doesn't. So at this moment, it's it's kind of his conviction is still up in the air. Yeah. Yeah. Crazy. Yeah. Ugh, don't get married so young, you guys. Don't. Don't murder Gil. Yeah. No. Uh, I mean, no, that, like, we're jo- joking. It's like, I've, you know, obviously I feel – terrible for Robin and her daughters and her family. It's, yes. it's just so heartbreaking. Um, and so senseless. Like it's just so, so like just you know it's like just get un- like I don't know. I feel like sometimes when you're in such like a small community, like I don't even mean a small town, but like if your world's really small, you're like these are the only people I'm hanging around, the only people I know. It's like you don't see that there is a big wide world and that you can just move to another fucking town. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that you don't have to stay in this life. Like and, and I'd it, also like really like to believe that Katie had nothing to do with it. I really yeah. do. Yeah. Um and I part of me does. I do. Yeah. It's just like I do understand why some people aren't a hundred percent convinced. Sure. Sure, yeah. sure, sure. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, but I well, hope that, that she's doing good things with her life and her kids are doing well as well. Yeah, same. Um, well, good one, dude. Thanks, man. Hey, Jen. Hey, Sally. Are you ready for a love story? I am. Okay, this is – I got my information um, from the Daily Mail by Chloe Morgan, the U.S. Sun by Aliki Kratauru. And by Tanks Good News by Darby Jones. And this is like not a romantic love story, but like a a love story of mothers and their daughters. Aw, that's sweet. Yeah. Okay. So um, this happened in Italy. Have you heard? (laughs) I have heard of Italy. (laughs) Have you heard of it? Marianella Algana was a mother of three when something happened that changed her world. She was picking up her daughter, Melissa, who was three years old at the time, from nursery school when she noticed another little girl at the same nursery school who was leaving to go home as well. And it must have seemed like deja vu because this little girl, whose name was Katerina, looked exactly like Marianella's other two children. So Marianella took her daughter Melissa home, but she couldn't shake this feeling that this wasn't a coincidence because she thought back to the day when Melissa was born on December 31st, 1998. Um, The atmosphere in the hospital was like jovial. Everyone was celebrating. It was New Year's. And when a nurse brought Marianella, her newborn baby, she was like a little taken aback because the baby was wearing a different outfit than she'd had on when she'd had her earlier. And the nurse was like, 
it was just a mix up. Don't worry about it. Like it happens in the nursery, you know, when they change diapers, like she probably just got someone else's outfit. Like, don't worry. And she didn't. She was like, okay, great. Like, and so she didn't for three years. But like when she saw this other little girl who looked so much like her two other daughters, she was like, I just can't ignore my suspicion. And so the next day she went to pick up again and she waited and that's when she saw the other child's mother, uh, a woman named Gisela Farera, and her suspicions were all but confirmed because she recognized Gisela as the woman who had shared the maternity ward with her three years earlier. (gasps) Gisela and her baby Katerina was born just 15 minutes after Marianella and Gisela had the exact same story as Marianella. That New Year's Eve in 1998, she too had been handed her baby and that baby had been wearing different clothing. (gasps) And again, the nurses were like, no, it's just been switched. Don't worry. Like, cheers. Happy New Year's, you know? And I feel like some people are probably like, how could you not recognize your own baby? Like if another, you know, if you're a mother, like you had that baby, you should be able to recognize your own baby. But I will tell you, like when Max was like, newborn he you know they took him to the nursery to like have him all checked out and like ben and i went to like the nursery to look at him uh-huh and we're like looking in the window and we're just like ah. that one? <laughs> which one of these is ours <laughs> like we're like waving and smiling to this one little boy because like all like the only thing you could really tell is like you know some of the babies have on hats with bows and some of them don't like so first we're like wait no that's not him is it that one or is it maybe it's like the other one like they all look the same and like this is new york city so like there's babies of all different races and ethnicities and they all look the same like we're standing next to this black couple and they were like we're like looking at them like do you know which one's yours and they were like yeah we have no idea like we can't these kids all look the same so we sat on this one kid i'm like yeah yeah no this is definitely max this is him but, like, you know, they don't have the names facing out front, I think, it's probably so people don't know. Kn- I don't know. It's probably a safety issue. But then, like, so we're looking at this one kid, like, that's him. It's definitely Max. And then this nurse comes out holding Max up. He'd been, like, in the back this whole time. He and was like, look, he's all checked out. And, like, none of the babies were ours, even though we were convinced this one kid was ours. So I just want to say, like, you know, they all they all look similar when they they're, do. When they're yeah. fresh out. <laughs> Plus, you're so out of it. You you're know? so out of it. You're like, I don't even. I mean, I barely know this kid, right? Yeah. Um. So anyway, so Gisela and Marianella were now pretty convinced what had happened, but they're also like scared because what it might mean for their families because they love these two girls. They're their daughters. They knew that they needed to know for sure before they could make any decisions. So they took a DNA test. And 15 days later, the results came back. These two girls had, in fact, been switched at birth. Wow. So now the families had to figure out what to do. And, like, I can't even imagine what they went through because, like, one hand, you've raised this child. You've loved this child as if she were your own, and that is what you believed, and that bond doesn't go away because suddenly you're not related by blood to that child. Like, any child who's adopted, like, no, that's – That bond is there, right? Mm -hmm. But also there's this other child out there who is yours biologically and it would be unthinkable just to pretend they weren't there. So Marianella said it was like this choice was just too impossible, too surreal. And Gisela said, I challenge anyone to raise a daughter for three years and then give her over – give her up over a simple mistake. 
So eventually they, they they talked to child psychologists, they talked to doctors, and they yeah. they were like, what do we do in this situation? And so every, you know, kind of like talking to each other, the families really worked through it and they were like, We will we will make the switch. These girls are young enough, but we'll do it gradually, you know. So the families started spending time together, and these two little girls were like instant best friends, you know. And in order to really let the girls get to know their biological parents and like get to know what it's like living with them while still not taking them away from their, you know, the families they've been living with, they actually got a big house together and all moved in together. Um, And so the families were pretty happy with this situation. The girls were happy. It was like they had two families, you know, and but they knew like this isn't a permanent solution. The families had other kids. They couldn't really like all just live together in one big house for the rest of their lives. So they ended up talking to these child psychologists about how to like, you know, kind of separate. And experts told them they were like the best thing would be to live separately with no contact for six months. (gasps) To allow these girls to bond with their biological families because if they're always around their mothers or like, you know, the mothers that right. they were raised with, like they're probably never going to really bond with their new biological families. so mind-blowing that like that they would even have a protocol for something. I know. Like that. You know well, what right. I mean? Yeah. Like how can anybody be an expert on this? It's such a like – I don't know. Yeah. It's just such an unusual and rare circumstance. Yes, exactly. And it's also, I mean, it's, I also, I'm like, who did you talk to? Because these are, they're in this like small fishing village in Sicily. So it's not like they're in like some big city where maybe, I don't know. I mean, it's like even, yeah. even if you were in a big city, this can't happen that often that you know how children are going to react. But maybe they're yeah. thinking like kids who have been, who, you know, are taken from their families because they need to go to like foster care or something. I don't know. Um, so Marianella said that so the the three year olds were like okay. Parents were devastated, of course, like when they s- separated because they were like were just following the advice they got. Um, but Marianella said that we two mothers cried on the phone to each other every day, and after Aww. three months, we decided we couldn't resist. We met e- back each we met each other and promised never to separate, and. Um, she said, after that, I saw Melissa every day. How could I not? I breastfed her. I taught her her first words. We had to share everything. And Gisela said that the transition was very hard and very confusing. She said, at first, loving Melissa, my biological daughter, felt like betraying the daughter I had raised. But today, Melissa and I truly feel like mother and daughter. So once they decided they weren't going to try to do this whole no contact separation, like from that point on, Melissa and Katerina were essentially raised as twins. So while they like mostly lived in separate houses, on the weekends, they would live together and they would celebrate every holiday together, birthdays. The two girls sat next to each other in school. And when they were eight years old, their parents told them the truth about what had happened. And they actually, neither of them have any memory now about that time before they were with their biological parents. But the fact that they were raised together actually means that they consider the woman that they were placed with first their second mother. And Katerina and Melissa consider each other sisters. And to them, it seems normal to have two families. Katerina said, we have eight grandparents, two fathers, two mothers, and the two the two mothers are very close friends. The two girls are very well adjusted and are now 23 years old and they still consider each other sisters. Aww. So there's actually the reason we know about all this is because a person named Mauro Capriccio wrote a book about their story called Sisters Forever 
And there was just a film on on TV in Italy, a documentary about them that's going to be broadcast this week. Oh, I'm definitely going to watch it. Yeah. I mean, can you um, like... No. I mean, I can't imagine. And then also just the bond that these two mothers must have. Yes. To, they're, they're the only person in the whole world that can understand what the other person is going through. And they like have complete empathy and sympathy and understanding and their support. They support each other and uh, they love the girls, both the girls with all their hearts. I don't know. It's just, yeah, there's just so yeah. much. What a bond. And what I think is amazing is that I kind of looked, I was like looking into like how often does it ha- this happen? And, um, and you know, they're like, it doesn't, it happens actually. It used to happen more often, of course, before there was like as much technology and and security as there is now. But uh, like there aren't there aren't that many cases of people like actually leaving the hospital with a baby that's not theirs. And a lot of the times you hear about it is because people have done DNA tests and found out and like way later in life and then they're suing the hospitals. And actually these women didn't sue the hospital at all. Wow. Like they just were like, you know, we are – they figured out a way to make this as like easy as possible for their children and to make it so that they were both in each other's lives. And I feel like it's just really beautiful that they're like, now these girls, instead of feeling like something tragic happened to them, they feel like, wow, I got extra an extra set of parents, an extra set of grandparents, an extra sister that I didn't have Aww. before. Like this was actually a really beautiful thing that happened, even though I can only imagine as a mother how yeah. horrifying it was at the time. Wow. Yeah, isn't that beautiful? Yes. And I remember like in the 80s, there being this um, made for TV. Yes. The switched at birth. <laughs> yes. Remember? Yes. I think like the girl from Jurassic Park was in it. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, but I remember it not being a love story. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A lot of them aren't, aren't uh, yeah. people are, people are real mad, as you can imagine. As you can yeah. imagine. Yeah. Wow. That's a good one, Sally. Yeah, thanks. Good. Should we do something dumb, something we love? I think we should do it. Let's wrap this up. Something dumb. I really don't have anything this week, you know? I don't want to bring up anything dumb if there's nothing except for my – I'm looking at my cell phone charger and I think I see sparks. (laughs) I'm like a a wedding reception over here. Jen, what do we tell you about (laughs) pyrotechnics? Dang it. There's one thing I never have, and it's cell phone chargers. And when I do have them, they're definitely damaged. Oh, same. Um, Ben and I have been, like, sharing in our whole house one cell phone charger for, like, the last month. And I'm like, why do we not just buy another cell phone charger? Like, instead of being like, are you done with it? Like, waiting in line (laughs) (laughs) to charge something. Like, uh. I know. They're not that expensive. No, we're just Um, dummies. But um, is my uh, something I love. I have you watched the show um, Reservation Dogs on Hulu? <gasps> we just started watching it. It's so good. I can't believe how good it is. I like. I've seen the the po- not poster, but like you know the title for it on Hulu for a while, and I was like, yeah, I'll, I'll check that out one of these days. Like, I'll look at that one of these days. And yeah. Then, um, and then I heard good things, and um, then the uh, last night, actually, I was like, mm, I'll give it a shot. And it's like from the first line of the show, it's just like the best show. It's so um, 
the writing is amazing. It's so fucking funny. All of those actors, um, the these child actors, I guess they're all like teenagers, but yeah. they're they're so talented. Isn't it crazy? Um, like I was like, have yeah. I seen these kids in anything? And no, like most of no. them, it's their first thing they've acted it, and they're so good. Yeah, it's so unique. It's not like anything else I've watched in a long time. Yeah, um, I I really loved it. So um, I love it. I've, I've they got more to go, but um, yeah. I'm excited to watch the rest. But I just wanted to tell you guys. Yeah, it's really good. Yeah. So I don't really, I don't really have anything dumb either, except I walked out yesterday morning to go to um, take Max to school and walked right into a spider's web, and it was that They're spider that I these days. Po- yeah, that I post that crazy ass spider. I'll post a picture of it, but that I posted on on Instagram. That you told me I conjured. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You did. Uh, I walked right into its web right in front I, of my house and I was like, oh, I did this to myself, I think. <laughs> I swear to God, I can name like five friends that have sent me a picture or talked about a spider or sent me. <laughs> Everybody's really worried about COVID right now. Yeah. But nobody's talking about arachnophobia. <laughs> Oh, it's coming for you. It's coming. We didn't see it happening. We were too busy worrying about COVID. We had no idea that the friggin' spiders were taking over. Oh man. Yeah. The planet. <laughs> um, so that is that's dumb, kinda. You know, I mean there's all of the big dumb things, but um, you know, why? Why why talk about that? The thing that I love is last weekend we went to Cloudland Canyon, which is a state park in Georgia. Oh, yeah. It's amazing. And we got a yurt. We ended up having like a really good time. And I, you know, I love camping. I love being in nature, but I also was like, oh, it's so nice to not have to be in a tent. Yeah. Especially when it's raining. It was so yeah. great. I was like, oh, yurts are pretty dope. Your pictures <laughs> looked amazing. That it, looked so fun. It was, it's gorgeous. If you are ever close by, I highly recommend Cloudland Canyon's great. Um, so yeah, so that's what I love. Sold. I'll do that. All right, do it. You know. All right. Well, you guys. I'm I just kidding. Okay. Okay. Well, <laughs> you I'll might. do it with you. Yeah, um, come with me. Yeah. Take the kids. Well, you guys. I hope you had a great week, and you guys should uh, hit us up. Hit us up on uh, on Facebook, on Instagram, on TikTok, all at Dumb Love Podcast. You can email us at dumblovepod at gmail.com. Uh, you can, you know, rate and review us. You can tell a friend. We would love that. We would absolutely love that. And have a wonderful week. And don't forget to get out there and do something dumb for love. Dum, da, dum, 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 d